our partners, so make sure you stop by. And then if you'd like to go to Kenya, we've made the trip really affordable by God's grace. I think less than $2,000 now will get you there, and it'll be a great chance for God to work on your heart. Let's open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. I'll say a short prayer, let you settle in. And then I think God has some great things for us this morning. I really do. Lord, we thank you for uh, church, Lord, where, Lord, in, our, in and out of our doors every Sunday, Lord, there's people that we've been on the other side of the world with. And, Lord, last night I think about 200 senior high kids out here. And it's just overwhelming, Lord. This is what we dreamed of 20 years ago when we started. And, Lord, it's all by your design, Lord. It's, it's through the word of God that we're even here. Lord, we want to live fruitful lives, lives that matter. We want to have purpose in this life. And I pray as we study Galatians, Lord, that you would reveal that to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Galatians chapter 3. I want to back up a few verses to give a flavor of what Paul's saying here. So chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died in vain, or he died for no purpose is the idea. Now, here's what he's trying to say. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has put you under this spell? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Well, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, that you're now going to be made perfect in the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness... Know that in those who have the faith are the sons of Abraham. Verse 8, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before to Abraham, saying, And you, all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We're in the third week of a series called The Fruitful Life. comes right out of the book of Galatians where Paul is trying to convince us, and God's trying to convince us, and I'm trying to convince you that God wants your life to matter. He wants you to bear fruit. It's what brings supreme glory and joy to him is when his children are fruitful. God wants you to be a success. Now, I know that's hard to imagine, because when we hear the word success, and that's just a secular word for fruitfulness, it's actually, though, a biblical concept. Joshua 1.8 is my life verse. And if you're searching for a life verse this morning, uh, you can borrow mine. It says this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you are careful to do all that is written in it. We're not only hearers of the word of God, but we're doers. Why? That you will make your way prosperous. And here's the word. You will have great success. Now, the problem is, what does success mean? Because it means one thing in the dominant culture, and it means another thing in the kingdom of God. There are only two ways to live in life. That's a life after the flesh or the life after the spirit. 
The people in the dominant culture who don't know God, who may be religious, go to some form of church or pray, are living according to the flesh. Jesus said when you live according to the flesh, you're living according to appetite. What you wear, what you drink, what you eat, and I'm going to add what you drive. Yesterday I was in a parking lot and there was a Ferrari, black Ferrari. Beautiful car, right? $250,000. And I'm not sure it'll get you here any faster than I got here. I don't know if it's more reliable. Um, but I know this, it has the little emblem of a horse. And that guy who gets in there and sees that on his steering wheel must just feel so accomplished when he looks at that little horse, right? But that's the flesh, right? Every commercial you see is what you eat, what you wear, what you drive, etc. Jesus said that's the way of the flesh. The way of the spirit is much different. We can still enjoy the things of the world, but our dominant thought is the things of the kingdom. What does the Lord desire? That's what permeates our being. In the kingdom of God, the realm Jesus came to bring, everything gets inverted. The price tags are changed. The poor are rich, the last are first, givers are actually blessed, the way up is down, and we descend through humility into greatness. And this is the gospel that, that Jesus brought this realm that you and I would flourish. I think ultimate success, and this is why I pastor, will be one day where you stand before the throne of God and you hear these words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter now into the rest that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And I think that's going to matter because God's going to say, you were given certain gifts, talents, and callings, whether they were thimble-sized or barrel-sized, right? We all get a portion. And if a faithful and good steward is someone who takes all of that and maximizes it for the kingdom of God. So whether you're Moses and you were endowed with great ability and you led three million people out of Egypt, or you're the widow who gave two mites, you will be classified as the faithful steward. Now, what makes all of this possible? Sheer act of the will, picking ourselves up by our bootstraps, getting on the religious, you know, parade. Like, what, what, how are we going to do this? No. What makes all this possible is what Paul's writing in Galatians, that the gospel has brought us for the first time the grace of God. The grace of God. The grace of God says that I'm justified not by my works, but by the finished work of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's just as if I've never sinned because Christ paid for me. It's a spiritual bankruptcy where no amount of church attendance, no amount I give in the offerings, no amount of what I do to appease a holy God works. It's all what Jesus did, and he said it was finished. I now can walk in the Spirit, and Galatians 5 says, I'll no longer fulfill the lust of the flesh. Look on the screen. I condensed Galatians 5 for you. Remember that whole list of the way we used to be? And then the whole list of who we are now? And so I condensed it. Uh, I actually do work during the week, by the way. And uh, so now we have this life where we're moving from illicit sex or sex outside of the boundaries of what God desires and what the dominant culture tells us works towards love, towards love. You know, every guy in the room, or women now, it's a big problem. Think about pornography. 
And when you think about pornography, I love what Pat Goodman said last week. He said, you know, you can have all these filters and all and, and no television, but come on, in the moment of temptation, you can go buy another television or another, or another computer, right, another iPhone. But what about when you start to see women as you look at your daughters? Your daughters have dreams and ambitions. They're not things to be used. We go from chemical highs to joy, from panic to peace, from selfishness to kindness, from outbursts to patience. I was in a counseling session this week with a young lady, and we were talking about uh, issues like this. And she said, well, I grew up in a home where everything was solved by yelling and screaming. And I never even knew that wasn't the right way to do things until I became a Christian and saw how others lived. And we were talking for a while, and she said, Pastor Bob, I know you came from the same kind of background. She said, did everything, like, just change for you at conversion? I said, no. I said, at conversion, this is what I saw. I saw for the first time the possibility of another way and then a path to that fruitfulness. See, that's how the Spirit works. Abraham was given a vision of this wonderful nation and blessing all nations. God often gives you a vision of the way things can be, but then you know what he does? He makes you walk step by step. Uh, for all the campers out there, you know this illustration, right? You go camping, and one of the kids has to go to the bathroom at 3 in the morning, right? And it's cold out, and you get out of the tent, it's pitch black. quarter mile down the way is where the bathroom is. So you get your lantern, you light it, and then you can only see a few feet in front of you. See, God gives you this end vision. He gives you the path to fruitfulness, but then his word becomes a light unto your path. He just gives you the next two steps. So there's two ways to live, a life in the flesh, a life in the spirit. Most of you probably never thought this through. They are not mutually exclusive. Here's what I mean by that. Someone who's living for the appetites of the flesh can experience the work of the spirit. They really can. You invite them to church, they can be touched by the music and the message. You take them to a crusade, God's moving on them. He's not far from any one of us. Likewise, someone who's spiritual can fall back into the flesh. None of us were perfect at regeneration. Remember the illustration I used the first week? We can turn the landlines on again and fall back. Solomon's an example. Samson's an example. Someone endowed with great ability by God, and he becomes a grinder, blind. But he finally says, Lord, this one last time, grant me faith, and he slays the Philistines. That was God's grace. You see, the truth is we enter the kingdom by grace, we live in the kingdom by grace, we're transformed by grace, and God builds churches and communities by grace. The illustration we're using for this series is a tree. Believe it or not, my mother was an artist, and she would turn over in her grave if she saw this. My dad was a drummer. I got neither of their talents, by the way. Um, but Psalm 1 talks about trees by the liver, rivers of living water bearing fruit, in every season, right? So the water is the spirit of God that longs to come in, and then we bear fruit, right? But what I want to talk to you this morning is the soil of fruitfulness, which is grace. And grace is misunderstood. You know, Calvary Chapel, we think we cornered the market on grace. The problem is too many of us think grace is the minimal requirements for getting into heaven. It's more than that. We're going to burn a lot of grace in life. We're going to live by grace. God's going to transform us by grace. And in case you think this is coming out of my mind, I want you to think back to Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. 
Jesus said, if you don't understand that parable, you can't understand any of his teaching on parables. And in that parable, he said, a man went out to sow in a field. And in, in, in the Mediterranean area, they sowed in terraces because it's very rocky ground. And when the man went out to sow, there was a path and some of the seed fell there and was trampled. And then there was another terrace where it was still filled with rocks and the soil wasn't deep, so it endured for a while. There was another area with thorns and thistles where it endured for a while, but then got choked out. And then only the good ground bore 30, 60, and 100 fold. Christians take that and they teach, well, you know, if you're going to live a life, you have to weed whack and, you know, turn up the soil. I'm sure there's application. But in Luke, Jesus said that the seed sowed by the wayside that got trampled down, the birds of the air came and took it away. Listen, that those people, lest those people believed and would be saved. See, the parable is about entrance into the kingdom. Uh, in another gospel, it says the devil comes to steal the word. So only good soil can produce any kind of fruit, whether it's 30, 60, or 100 fold. I think you get the application here. There's nothing wrong with the seed. It's all about the soil. Has the soil been turned up by God's grace? When you understand grace, when you understand you're spiritually bankrupt, when you're justified on the merits of another, on the work of Jesus Christ, you realize there's no middle ground. There's no hybrid. Uh, you see, these Galatians heard, oh, you could be saved by Jesus Christ. Great. And then people came along and said, yeah, that, you're right. You're saved by the work of Christ. But here's what you forgot. There's a whole Old Testament and there's dietary laws and, and there's Sabbath and so forth. And if you do this, you'll be a better person. And I want to tell you, most of us aren't going to fall into that, right? Because we don't live in that environment. But I lived enough of a Christian life to know that is very appealing. Very appealing. It's one of the works of a pastor. I'm here to guard against that for you as a shepherd. Because I know the heart and I know the mind wants to add to the work of Christ. You don't do it willingly. And there was a thing in the early church called Gnosticism. Gnosos means to know in Greek. And there's something where somebody comes along and says, Psst, you didn't read this new book? You didn't read this? Oh, you got to read this, because when you read this, you'll understand. Calvary Chapel, you know, what they're teaching you is okay, but you go to higher ground. And then you come in the next time, you look around, you say, oh, these people here, they're, they're at the ABCs, and now I'm getting a graduate degree. When we were young in our faith, there were wonderful missionaries who were in India, and they convinced us that our church, you know, wasn't the church it should be, and they had us come to this guy's home group. I went to this home group, and we're there, and all of a sudden this guy comes out, and he starts screaming and talking about dying to the flesh, and like the hardest message you would ever hear was on City Line Avenue. And I remember thinking, well, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian but I had to go to the bathroom, and I went upstairs. It was a very large home on the, on the main line. And I went to the bathroom, and I looked out the window, and he had a built-in pool. And, um, and I've been around the block enough. Here's how it works. Paul said, who has bewitched you? There's always a who. There's always a guy, okay? Whenever this happens, there's always a guy who's trying to bewitch you. So I look at that pool, and I thought, you know, why does it always work this way? 
you know, he's got the nice house, he's got the pool, and they always have the hot wife. Do you ever notice that? You know, that just always comes with the package. And three days later, I'm praying, and I thought, I can't do this. I cannot do this. And I actually had thoughts about going back in the world. And then I realized, wait a second, that's the voice of God. You can't do this. It's already been done. See, this has got to be the soil to any fruit you're going to bear. And God wants us to be a congregation of trees. Anything we're producing that's not through grace is chaff. Psalm 1, it's going to be blown away. Wood, hay, and stubble. There's no middle ground. Paul will go down as the greatest leader other than Jesus Christ for this one reason. He never considers himself great. This is the man who was the greatest apostle who said, I'm the chief of sinners. And he was so vehement that it was by grace that we would never go back that he goes to Jerusalem and he calls Peter a hypocrite because Peter was saying one thing to Jews and one thing to the Gentiles. Read Galatians chapter 1. And Paul said, I'll fight for the death for this because there's nothing we can add. There's nothing we can do. There's no hybrid. There's no Jesus plus this or Jesus plus that. There's no Jesus plus the health and wealth gospel. There's no Jesus plus reformed theology. There's no, there's no gnosos that's going to make you a better Christian. It's the Spirit of God working through grace that will allow us to live fruitful lives. Now, again, none of you are going to be tempted to become Jewish, right? You all probably ate bacon this morning. Praise God. Maybe you had shellfish last night. Praise God. Yesterday was the Sabbath. You didn't have to stay home. Praise God, right? We're not going back to that. But we may go back to some other things. It's all the same. See, the heart loves this. The heart loves to put man and movements on a pedestal. And Jesus is the only one on a pedestal. Now, this is brilliant, guys. I hope you have Bibles. Paul said, you want to go back to the law? All right, I'll take you back. Not to Moses, the lawgiver. How about if we go all the way back? Let's go to Abraham. Verse 8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Paul writes that the scripture preached to Abraham. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, there is no scripture. Scripture wouldn't come for hundreds of years later. There was no Bible. There was no Genesis. Moses would write it later. The scripture was preaching to Abraham? I go back to Genesis 12, 3, and God is the one who preaches to Abraham. Uh, Abraham, get out of your town and go to a land I'll show you and I'll make you great. Paul's saying the scripture is inspired and divine? Yeah, I think he is. Sooner or later, when you tell someone about your faith, they're going to ask you who wrote the Bible. And you're going to go, hum, 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 hum. And you're going to get all nervous and tongue-tied, right? And some of them are curious, like, who wrote the Bible? And you have to tell them, man, under the inspiration of God. Others are like, uh, who wrote the Bible? You really believe that man was inspired by God? 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture, not some, not who PhDs at Harvard declare are the scriptures, not the Jesus seminar, 
All scripture is inspired of God. It's profitable for instruction, reproof, correction, that the man of God might be complete. Well, how did they write? 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 2, verse 21, holy men of old spoke as they were moved. In other words, God came upon man and they were moved. It's one of the great miracles. And then there's preservation. We could talk forever about the scripture. Well, how do I know that all the books are inspired? Well, we can't get into that this morning. Google F.F. Bruce. He has written so much on this subject, the canon of scripture. If you really want to go and figure that out, um, I would recommend it. But Paul said the scripture preached Abraham. Is the scripture divine? Um, this is one of these days if you can turn, you can learn. Um, if you can't turn, I'll read it for you. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees came to Jesus in verse 4. And they tested him saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They, they didn't really care about that. They were just testing him. And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they'll become one flesh. You know God never said that? Go back and read Genesis 2.24. Moses wrote that. Jesus said God said it. Is that kind of sinking in now? That the scriptures are one? That they're inspired? Holy men of old wrote? If you need one more example, Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up, preaches the first sermon of the church. After he's done, he says, David did not ascend into the heavens, but David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Peter said, David said that. Go back and read Psalm 2. Guess who said it? God said it. So what we're finding out is that what Man writes, God has said. What David said, God said. What we're finding out is the scriptures are divine. And get this, Paul's taking it one step further. The scriptures preached to Abraham. He's saying that the scriptures have a being. They're divine. They're revelatory. And of course, that all makes sense when you read John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he dwelled among us. Everything Jesus did was the embodiment of the word of God. He said, there's nothing I do that the Father hasn't told me. And I and the Father are one. Hebrews 4, 2 says the word is active and alive, more powerful than any two-edged sword. Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. The scripture foresaw, God foresaw, God is the gospel. Here's what I'm trying to say. Scripture never works apart from the Spirit. The Spirit never works apart from Scripture they always work together. And why is this important? Because there are cults out there and there are religions out there who say, we believe in the Bible, we believe in Jesus. Yeah, I guess you do believe in Jesus. Even the demons believe and tremble. I was in Madison Square Garden years ago at a New Age conference and we had like a Christian booth there. Weirdest thing I was ever at. And um, can I tell you, Jesus was at every table. Every New Age table, there was a picture of Jesus. The Hindus, right? If you tell them about Jesus, great, I'll accept him. He's one of a hundred million gods that I now worship. The Mormons believe in Jesus. They don't believe he's the son of God or he's Lord. It's very subtle. Why am I saying this? Because in chapter 1, Paul said if an angel comes, and there are religions and cults that have started by angels 
who have given revelatory knowledge. If an angel or if I come as an apostle and give you anything outside of this word, let them be cursed. Why? Because it doesn't work. Legalism has failed in the only thing it's tried to accomplish, and that's to make you and me holy. It doesn't work. It's a miserable failure. Now, we're going to get real practical right now. All that is to get practical. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.16, the, the chart I showed you, right? Let me pick one. I could have picked anyone. I'm, I'm going to pick peace. As a believer, as someone who's had a conversion, you should be coming more peaceful, right? The flow of the Spirit and grace is allowing you a path to peacefulness. The mistake we make is we get up in the morning, we have a cup of coffee, and we pray a prayer like this. God, give me peace. And then we pick up the Wall Street Journal, okay? <laughs> now, I think God can give you peace. You, you know what I think more than likely he'll do? I think as you read the scripture, as you pray, as you walk through your day with eyes wide open, I think God will begin to re reveal to you and make clear the way you can activate peace or let the Spirit produce peace. I'll give you an example. Uh, many of you know last year I was out for four months with, I don't know, burnout or anxiety or whatever it was. And I'm not out of the woods, by the way. You know, I came back at 75%. I got to 85%. I went down to 60%. And so I'm not out of the woods. But here's what happens now. I still get some symptoms like feet tingling and numbness and stress in my neck or chest. But you know what I do now? I don't say, God, give me peace. I center myself. And I go to Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, and I say, search me, O God, and know my heart. God, I'm a man. There, there's, the heart is desperately wicked. I don't even know it, God. God, what... Are there roots of bitterness? Like, Lord, what's going on in there? And then I say, try me and know my anxious thoughts. God, these are anxious thoughts. You told me not to worry, God. Where is this coming from? Sometimes it hits me from out of the blue. Then I say, see if there's any grievous way in me. God, I'm a sinner. Is, is sin stopping the flow of your spirit? And then finally, as the psalmist prayed, lead me into the way everlasting or lead me to the path that will be fruitful and bring the peace you so desire, God. Because, God, I want to be a tree. I don't want to be chaff. I don't want to do this in the flesh. I don't want to start out in the spirit and wind up in the flesh. God, where am I helping you along? Where are my shoulders not big enough, God, to carry the burdens I'm carrying. You know what the problem is? Christians have been trained to run to the altar. Anybody who's lacking peace today, come to the altar. And then some professional who's whooping it up and on stage is going to pray over you and you're going to leave with peace. Now, maybe one in a thousand does, and I'm not saying that can't happen. But you know, most of those people go to their car with no peace for a whole host of reasons. If I know anything about the Spirit of God, he leads us to the way everlasting. He shows us there's a better way. Now, in Galatians, Paul writes in verse 10, 
For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. By the way, we'll talk about this more next week. If you're in some religious system, if you're counting on a religious system, let me tell you how it works. You just read it. If you were in Judaism and you broke the law, one thing of the law, you broke the whole law and you were done. What did God say to Adam? In the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. But it was grace that allowed him to live. If you're counting on your own works or a religious system, if you've broken one law, you're kaput. Now, here comes the beautiful news. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But if the law is not of faith, rather than the one who does them shall live by them, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and he hung on the cross. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise through faith. Now, the rest of the chapter basically says, then why do we ever have the law? And the reason we had the law is because it was, it was to teach us that grace was coming. So everybody before the cross looked to the cross, everybody after looks back. And justice and mercy kissed each other, right? And then we get this wonderful saying that as many of you were baptized into Christ Jesus and put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there's neither male or female. What that verse is saying, it doesn't matter who you are, we all come through the same door. We all bowed the knee to Christ and went through the door of grace. See, Christianity is the only religion where I die up front. At conversion, I said, Lord, take my life and take it wherever you would. And now grace has become my fuel. Some of you this morning have never walked through the door of grace. You're still on the performance plan. You're still caught up in a religion. You're caught up in sacraments. You're caught up in what you're doing for God and hoping it all evens out at the end. I would challenge you to walk through the door of grace, which is to get on your knees and say, God, I'm a sinner and I want to be saved. And get off the performance plan and get on the grace plan. Some of you need a grace explosion. Some of you are saved by grace, but you're trying to get perfected in the flesh. You need to go back to your salvation. Let the dam burst. Let God take all the guilt and all the shame. I want to close by something Justin Holcomb wrote. It's a little long, but we're right on time. He said, My understanding of unconditional love and its implications germinated when I was 10 years old, and I flooded our next-door neighbor's home. Our neighbors had moved and were trying to sell their house. One day I broke in through the back door, closed all their drains, uh, put all their tubs and sinks on and faucets, and flooded the house and went home and ate dinner and then came back and turned it all off. Isn't that a scary thought that your neighbor's kid could do that to you? He said, I know what I had done was wrong, and I was even shocked that I had wanted to do something so destructive. When our neighbors found the damage the following day while showing the home to prospective buyers, they came to our house and asked my family if we had seen anyone in their place recently. On top of what I had already done, I lied to my neighbor and my parents. I felt completely messed up. I was destroying stuff for the sake of destroying and then lying blatantly to everyone. I had heard about asking God's forgiveness. My dad taught me the Lord's Prayer, so I begged God to forgive. I was worried he wouldn't. 
Surely something so deliberate and cruel was just too much to forgive. After a month with an uneasy conscience, I was found out. Another neighbor had seen me sneaking around and told my parents. My father called me in from playing outside with my friends and asked me if I remembered anything important about the flooding incident. I knew something was up, but I felt I had to stick with the lie at this point. Finally, my dad told me, and I was busted. I experienced an overwhelming sense of shame and guilt for my sins, as well as an intense fear of the consequences. I sobbed and muttered, Dad, I'm sorry. I've been asking God to forgive me for so long, and I don't think he ever will. In a moment of parental love and great wisdom, my dad said, If you ask God to forgive you, then you're forgiven. You deserve to be punished, and this will cost a lot of money to fix. But son, you are forgiven. Go back outside and play. The fruit of one-way love in Justin's life was not only a renewed love for his father and genuine willingness to behave, but a faith in God's mercy and love that is gripped and carried into this very day. As of this writing, Justin's most recent book is titled On the Grace of God. Can you imagine a parent understanding enough about grace to minister to his son this way? I read this story and I thought, God, there's got to be somebody in this room who thinks the same way. What I have done is so grievous, not even God in heaven can forgive. And then there's Christians who are thinking, God's done with me. I'll never measure up. And we all know that the grace of God is saying, no, you're forgiven. It's finished. Whatever you've done, I've taken it as far as the east is from the west, and I've made it white as snow. You know what some of us need to hear this morning? You're forgiven. Go out and play. That's what we really need to hear. Go out and play. Go out and enjoy life. Be fruitful. Multiply. Enjoy the day. Look at the sun and the clouds, and look at the people that you love, and look in their eyes. And as Augustine said, love God and do whatever you want. Go out and play, because you're forgiven. And that's why a woman who was a prostitute in a town was at a dinner that no one would ever allow her in except Jesus were there. All the people that we thought were religious would have never gotten near this woman. But you know what she did? She broke an alabaster box of perfume, and she wiped Jesus' feet with her tears and washed his feet with her hair. Why? Because she was performing? No, because she had been forgiven because those who are forgiven much love much. We're going to burn a lot of grace in this thing called life. It's how you got in, it's how you're going to get there, and it's how you're going to be fruitful. Not through condemnation. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came that we might be saved. Father, my prayer for every person in this room is to have an explosion of grace, God. To realize, Lord, the life we live, we now live in Christ. Lord, it doesn't take us off the hook. We, Paul said he buffeted his body as a soldier. Lord, you have given us the path to fruitfulness. You've given us the way and the ability. Faith is now a rest. Lord, faith is now a time where we rest in your love and your care and step by step, Lord, we, we walk along a journey. Lord, we're going we're gonna to take detours. 
There's going to be bumps in the road. But you said you were with us. And Lord, that's so important. You're with us. And Lord, I, I feel like in my journey, the longer I live, the less religious I'm becoming. The more I abhor religion, because Lord, it blocks people from your love. Lord, help us to walk out of this room today free. Knowing that you're Abba Father. Knowing that you put gift and dreams in our hearts. That we might truly live. Lord, set your people free today. Show them what freedom looks like. Give them a grace explosion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.